When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BookBooks.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today's guest is Ian McMillan. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Hi. Nice to meet you. Indeed, indeed. Nice to have you on the show. Um, and we're going to do... In, uh, regular listeners will, will uh, re- may remember I did a, a detour into crime films away from my maybe traditional five great British horror films. Well, today we're going into new movie territory. We're going to be talking about five great British musicals. And that's because Ian's made a TV show for BBC Four, which is coming up in December, I believe. Uh, yes, uh, during the Christmas period. I think it starts mid-December on BBC Four. Okay, and what's it called? It's called Neil Brand's Sound of Movie Musicals. It's a series with um, Neil Brand, who has done various series already for BBC Four. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one he did was about stage musicals. Um, Neil is, I think it's fair to say, Britain's most accomplished silent film pianist, accompanist. Right. And, um, you know, as a real expert on movies and he and I both have got a real serious love of musicals and uh, fortuitously we were brought together. And uh, between the three of us, uh, between the two of us, rather, sorry, (laughs) um, we came up uh, with this three part series, which basically traces the history of the film musical internationally. Uh, mm-hmm. Not just American Britain, but all over the world, uh, from its origins in the 1920s, pretty much through to the present day. Yeah, well, I mean, just for the for the audience's benefit, I I, I had the luxury of being able to get a preview screening of uh, episode two. Which, uh, if there's any way of recommending anything, I can't wait to see episode three. The uh, the way that, and certainly there were surprises in there from that kind of global view of the musical, which, from my sort of I guess basic understanding of the history of musicals really sort of um, filled in some gaps I wasn't aware of and had me Googling for, um, for music that sadly Google won't find and neither will, <laughs> neither will that. So, But it's great to sort of even be tempted and enticed and maybe the programme could be the catalyst for some music to be rediscovered. Uh, that would be terrific. I mean, uh, that was definitely part of the way that we approached it was, mm. you know, if I remember, you know, back to the... the from so my youth, there were things like the MGM story, and you know you kept seeing all these incredible clips of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and 
um, Gene Kelly, and you know they, they are they are fantastic. There's no question they are fantastic mm. movie moments. But to just kind of like dig a bit further and look at things that aren't quite so recognised, so that it didn't feel like, to be perfectly honest, it didn't feel like a clip show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, yeah, because in in the um, in the episode that, that I watched, you've got you've got world, you've got the end of World War Two, you've got the rise of the Communist Party in China, um, as and the civil re- the civil uh, civil rights movement, counterculture. They're all backdrops to the story of what was happening to musical movies. Yes, and that was very much the point was to kind of give them a sort of. Um, a context, really. Uh, that's a terrible word, isn't it? But, you know, to give them that context that essentially said, I don't know. I mean, in a way, it was kind of like almost kind of like rehabilitate the reputation of the film musical, which I think most people think of as just some kind of rather flimsy, you know, uh, entertaining thing. And actually, of course, it can be that, mm. but it can be something much more, um, well, much more, to be honest, I think much more part of film history which I think it hasn't been uh, given the credence of for a very long time. Yeah, and, and I, guess, I guess your timing's impeccable, isn't it, in terms of the success that La La Land enjoyed? Uh, well, that's true, yes. Or indeed, actually, even more so, The Greatest Showman, which of course, I have yeah. unfortunately been forced to watch multiple times by my son. I was going um, to say, is there a youth in the house? <laughs> <laughs> and, and in the car, in fact. We, we, you know, the Greatest Showman soundtrack has basically become the sound of 2018, unfortunately. Well, I mean, I mean, there, there, therein lies the story, isn't it? With that film, the one, it was almost like thrown out to be released, and then suddenly, it's the most one of the most popular films of the year, and everyone's sort of going, "How did that happen?" Well, of course, as indeed has Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> yes, 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 that's been a surprise. Which I haven't seen yet, but um, I guess I ought to. I will do. I will do. Well, let's get on to your five. Yes. Um, so, as, as the rules are the same, I'll just repeat the rules. I've told you this off, off mic, as it were, but, yep. um, but just for the people listening. The rules are straightforward. Uh, Ian's given me five films. We'll go through them in sort of date order, so starting with the oldest to the newest. Um, we get five minutes, and on, in this instance, when Todd Rundgren sings, all the children sing, that'll be the sign for us to stop talking about that musical. That was the best I could come up with in terms of what I had available as uh, as, as clips of music. Sounds good to me. I could, I could put... You can never go wrong with Todd Rundgren, that's for sure. <laughs> well, look, let's start off with clocks ticking on five minutes, and the first film is Evergreen from 1934. Do you want to give it like a sort of scene set for that then? Um, yeah, I can. I mean, Evergreen is kind of like pretty much as far as this is a film that I wasn't aware of until we started making the series. But Evergreen is kind of as far as I can see, it was pretty much one of the very first attempts for British cinema to try and take on what had become by that stage, you know, the mid 30s, the sort of the great Hollywood musical tradition, you know, 42nd Street and Busby Berkeley and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and what's, what I found completely remarkable about it was, and I hesitate to say this, you know, it can't quite compete <laughs> with those great, you know, whether it's budget or whether it's a kind of like, you know, sense of the, uh, what British cinema actually felt it could achieve at the mm-hmm. time. It doesn't really have the massive, in many respects, doesn't really have the massive scale of those films. And yet, it is you look at it and you think 
my God, this is Britain in the 1930s. You know, on the cusp of the Second World War. Mm. Um, and it is this remarkably lush, extravagant, uh, it, incredibly um, forward thinking film in a way that you don't expect from a British film from 1934. You know, it's sort of like um, it's kind of like Busby Berkeley with a stiff upper lip. Mm. And, there's, and there's a very sort of, you know, for the day anyway, at least there's a storyline in there, which is hardly mainstream, is it? It's extraordinary, isn't it? You know, so we we have this character. She's got an illegitimate daughter. Mm. Um, she she you know, she can't have her career anymore. She leaves the country. She comes back to Britain. Uh, as I remember it, she pretends to be her daughter grown up. Oh, no, her <laughs> daughter comes back to the country pretending to be her mother um, and uh, and becomes this enormous, big sort of, you know, phenomenal success. Mm. But 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 it has got a sort of social context. You know, it's got, you know, illegitimacy. It's got blackmail. Quite remarkable things for any British film in the early 1930s, let alone a musical. And what was in terms of the context of you, you discovering it through making the TV show? What what is its position then in terms of sort of um British musicals or even musicals globally speaking? Well, I suppose, you know, I, I thought the context was, you know, um, I kind of felt that it was, it showed how if you couch something in the context of a musical, you know, a narrative, a story, whatever it might be, you actually get away with making something a bit more racy, is racy the wrong word? You know, a bit more challenging, which is a terrible word. But, you know, a, you get away with it more because it's a musical than you would have done if you were making, you know, Kind Hearts and Coronets or whatever. Um, in the series, we've got a, 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 a chunk in the first film, uh, the first programme, where we look at Soviet musicals from exactly the same era, actually, from the 1930s, where Stalin was sanctioning these films that were essentially sort of feel-good American-style musicals, but were basically promoting Stalinist values. And I wouldn't say that, you know, Evergreen does that. It certainly doesn't do that at all. But it is a real example of how um, the musical was able to take something that was quite a serious storyline. And because it had songs and because it had you know, Jesse Matthews and a kind of Jesse Matthews, by the way, is the central character um, in a long, voluptuous floating gown. You kind of get away with it. And I think that's quite a remarkable thing for British film in the in the early 1930s. Yeah, we were a bit, we were a bit buttoned up then, weren't we, in some senses? Yes. I mean, as I, as I said, you know, it was kind of like, you know, it was Busby Berkeley with the stiff upper lip. I mean, it's got to be said, there are some things that are really... Uh, contentious in this film. <laughs> um, there's there's a bit where they do a Charleston um, and they're on a stage and behind them they've got these black faced minstrels and they've sort of got goggly eyes, a bit like a, a gollywalk. Wow. <laughs> and you look at it now and you think, well, God, you know, it'd be really hard to watch this film in a current climate and actually not find objectionable things in it. Mm. And yet again, at the same time, um, you know, the, the, there's this number, um, Dancing on the Ceiling, which is one of the key numbers of the film, where she sort of floats through this Art Deco 
scenario in this incredibly oh 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 damn it oh well <laughs> you're very, i nearly you're, got there <laughs> not everyone sticks to the rules other people carry on but yeah but very good then uh, no that's all right moving moving i get the rules <laughs> no, it's a, I'm, look, I'm, I'm free and easy to be honest with you. It's just that it may, it may ensures we don't spend talking thirty minutes about one film and then and then spend half a minute talking about four. Uh, I now, like it. It's like just a minute, <laughs> just five minutes on any film. Uh, so the next five minutes has begun, and we're moving, we're jumping forward to 1951. We're we're post-war now. We're Powell and Pressburger. We're the Tales of Hoffman. Yeah, um, when you were um, you mentioned that. Um, thinking about how I'd first seen these films, you know, it's really extraordinary to think the first time I saw this was on, you know, BBC two used to show movies in the afternoons before Mm -hmm. we had a thousand and one channels. Yeah. And I guess, you know, one afternoon when I was, you know, a kid, uh, Tales of Hoffman came on and it just, it it was just absolutely extraordinary to me, you know? And I think, um, it's really hard to describe what what that impact was, but you know the staging, the way it's filmed. And I'd never had opera before. I don't think, actually, to be honest. Obviously, you know, it's based on an Offenbach opera, mm. um, but it isn't really a film of a stage musical. It's it's a, it's it's a film that's kind of like all the stuff that I would then go on to discover years and years later. You know. Mm. Um, surrealism salvador dali you know um i look at it now as a you know a proper grown-up and you know i can see there's like you know um Bunuel or rennie claire or whatever in it but it just um it, it just completely sang to me i don't really know any other way to describe it actually i mean it's fascinating that, that you know here we are in 51 adapting you know eta's hoffman's work to screen and doing it as and and you think we've got Nutcracker Suite at the cinema today, we've got Sandman in production. You know, there's there's something about this this uh, about about um, about him that's quite remarkable, isn't it? And and what obviously lends itself to the big screen. Yes, I think that's true, and I think just the idea that you know it is why it is so striking is it's so much more than just a film of an opera mm. because. As we know, we're now used to the idea that you know you can go to the cinema, you get a live transmission from the Met or whatever it is, and you see the opera on the stage. Yeah. But they were seeing it as a film, and you know that was the striking thing to me in a way. Is I, I hadn't really, I don't think I'd really ever seen something that was made as a film. I know that sounds like a really strange thing to say. No, 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 because that's, that's, that's like a... the art, like like the artifice of a film. You know, they have those overhead shots. They have the bit where there's a bit where they sail out on a boat, and it's obviously completely artificial. You know, we do it in green screen now, mm. and they're sailing towards this island, which I now know is based on Arnold Bocklin's um, Isle of the Dead painting. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't know that when I was ten or twelve, whatever yeah. it was. Um, and just that idea that you make something that is a film that has all of these elements to it. That was probably, you know, having seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and, you know, Disney or whatever it was, that was the first time that I could see that, you know, film could be a kind of very artful type thing. But but interesting, and, and, and this is maybe where I'm guilty of what generally you, you may have been motivated to make your TV series about, is that 
one of the things that your that the episode two points out is this notion of what can be done on screen versus what cannot be done on stage. And suddenly you began to see the movie and the musical becoming a, a kind of addition to the expression of dance, as it were, and the way music is used in film. So I think that I think that, that that's something that, that I'd I'd certainly not thought of watching it. I just thought of it just be they're just pointing a camera at a stage. But obviously there's more to movies than that and clearly musicals give you an option to play with um, to play with a camera like um, like like all kinds of action does I suppose to convey it. I mean in many ways I would say possibly, you know, I'm getting off the subject of the actual film now. No, but in many ways I would I would say that actually that's one of the things that I was that we were Neil and I were trying to get across in the series is that actually this is why film is so significant in terms of the musical, is that um, you know, and you know, we've got pop videos suddenly in the 1970s and 1980s. Mm. Is that actually um, you get away from a standard, you know, back and forth shot narrative type thing that you get in a normal film, um, and you can put the camera, you know, like Busby Berkeley did. You can put the camera right at the top. You can have a very long tracking shot. You can have, you can have a, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a if I remember correctly, there's a fantastic bit in Tales of Hoffman where they have a duet dance but they show it they they do a kind of um it's a bit like in the queen bohemian rhapsody video where mm. you see everything from different perspectives yeah. they show it from different perspectives and you know that you, you you can't do that on the stage you can't do it anywhere else you can only do it on a film and 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 that was the thing in that film i think when i saw oh, oh, here we go. that was that was almost on cue that was almost on cue well, look, moving swiftly forward to another decade, and I think culturally the world's changed considerably from 51 to 67 for yeah. the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour, which, I'd, you know, I I'd never, I'd never knew it was only it was a TV movie, first and foremost, until I went and looked back. Uh, I hadn't even thought about it, because obviously it was... Well, it technically wasn't. It was actually made by the Beatles, and then they sold it to the BBC, ah. <laughs> which is probably why they got away with making the film they wanted to make. Also explains how the film was based on was it an idea that Paul McCartney had on the way back yes. to Monterey Festival. <laughs> yeah. If only, if only films were that easy to write. <laughs> <laughs> but what appeals... For, for this, I mean, this obviously, this is where we're kind of where I guess what episode two sort of points to is where the musical and popular culture, as in the the sort of what what follows rock and roll, I suppose, as opposed to uh, m music getting used in movies. It's really about the class, the culture clash now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I guess I have to be very quick on this. Um, what appeals is lots of things. Cool. Uh, I um, I had the double EP of Magical Mystery Tour. Um, wow. as a kid uh, because where um, I grew up um, with my sisters were much older than me and mm. somehow in the house we had this double EP with the music on it mm -hmm. um, which I, I would play on the dance set I could play it over and over again so the music really 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 you know is has genuinely been a part of my life literally since, you know, since I was a toddler, really. Mm. Um, I, I didn't see the film when it was originally broadcast, obviously. And I guess what really appeals is the idea that uh, at the risk of sounding like someone, you know, who kind of, you know, reads Mojo magazine from front cover to back every month, which unfortunately, actually, I do. I was going to say, um, I think you might. I'd be, I'd be surprised if you didn't. <laughs> um, is, is that... Uh, it is extraordinary 
that at the height of their fame in the 1960s, they made this piece of just complete unutterable madness, <laughs> frankly. And is that, is, does that, because, I mean, but, but it was loose, what was it? It's loosely based on the fact that we, we, people in England would go on holiday and not know where they're going. Is that literally what the inspiration was for this? For I think this? that was the inspiration. Yeah, I think that what you know, you, you would, um, you know, you'd get on a bus. I mean, we used to go to the Isle of Man on holiday. I'm getting, I'm sidetracking again. Right, and we'd get on, we'd get on a bus, and it would be a mystery tour. This mm. would be like the early seventies, and and it would drive through the Isle of Man, and we'd end up in some kind of like strange backwater somewhere, you know, and we'd eat strawberries and cream, um, and that is part of the film. But the other part of the film, which is the really sensational part of the film is you know the fact that it is completely mental and the idea that i think um i'm right in saying that you know mccartney you know mccartney had really um immersed himself in what was then what we now call the counterculture in london you know mm. so he was watching you know kenneth anger film you know no one was watching kenneth anger films in britain in 1967 you know virtually mm. um and he brought all of that sort of underground film sensibility and whether or not you think it's cack-handed and it is a bit cack-handed you know but slightly cack-handedly turned it into the absolute antithesis of a hard day's night and then it went out on BBC One on Boxing Day That's right, yeah. and 20 million people watched it and they just thought, what is this? <laughs> like you know, it'd be it's like unheard of. It'd be like sending your grandma to Glastonbury, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, it would be, yes. Um, and, and of course, the other ridiculous detail, which is a detail, is the BBC transmitted it in black and white. And, you know, the big thing about the film is it's a fantastically colourful film in, in the way in which, actually, of course, you know, um, Tales of Hoffman is. Mm. Again, that's a film that we're coming from the post-war period. And, you know, it's not black and white anymore. It's fabulously colourful. But I, I, I just think that in the canon of the Beatles, it's very, very underrated. And I'm... You know, I, I'm always a big champion of the underdog. And I think this film is the underdog of the Beatles um, achievements. You know, the, the, the sequence of um, they do flying, which is the incredible George Harrison instrumental track. Mm. And I think they sent someone to Iceland to shoot this footage and they colorized it and everything which is of course, weird because it went out in black and white. And that sequence is like, um, you know, at the end of 2001, the Stargate bit where yeah. he's flying through and you see all that stuff. It's sort of, it, it is literally the equivalent of that. And I just feel it's the Beatles. The Beatles are doing this, you know. What a remarkable thing that is. I mean, um, I, mean yeah, I, guess, I guess the easy criticism would be they're being indulgent, but on, 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 the, on the more positive end, it's like doing what they please must have been one of the hardest things to do when you're ubiquitous. It is a bit indulgent. And, you know, and I, I'm not standing up for the fact that it is a bit of a mess. And it doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't really hang together as a narrative. In fact, there isn't really a narrative. And, you know, God knows the poor editor probably had to assemble the entire thing. Yeah. Um, but, as a, but, as, but as something that says, can you really believe this happened in Britain in 1967? Sort of in the same way that I'm, you know, I was saying, can you really believe Evergreen was made in Britain in 1934. Mm. Uh, it, 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 as a cultural artefact, it's actually 
incredibly significant, I think. No, no, and, totally. and that and that makes up for whatever failings it might have as a film. Just, in very, just, just very quickly, then, as uh, I've found myself over recent years listening to music of films before I see the film, which is kind of a weird habit I've been able to get into thanks to Spotify. So, <laughs> do you remember much of that watching a film where you knew every single song so well, whereas the films, the the images must have just seemed like just colouring in, really. Yes, I do. I, I, that's why the flying bit is so fantastic, yeah. you know, because I had that EP and as I said, I literally did put it on the record mm. player and play it. And, you know, I, I, I was three, four, you know, and here's this mm. weird kind of trippy psychedelic instrumental. Finish your thought. And boy. then I saw it on film and, and it, it blew my mind, which brings us on to the next one, I think. Indeed it does, yes. Uh, what, year, what year do you, I mean, I was... What year is Tommy for you? Because I, I was looking um, for I that. gave you the wrong year. Tommy is 1975. I thought, yeah, no, that's what I was... I, was, I wasn't going to sort of shout about it either, but I just thought, God, I'm... Because if it's 71, it's, it's, a, it's a astounding because the musical leap. I thought, I thought it, was, it was later in their career. So, 1975, Tommy. Yeah. Directed by Ken Russell, who was... A genius. At the peak of his powers, I guess, in 75. Um, I would say so. And doing a rock opera... That Pete, what Pete Townsend has written. Carry on. <laughs> I, have, I have got a very personal story for Go this, on, please. Um, if it's not too indulgent. Um, so I was on, we were going on holiday. Mm -hmm. I think we were, I guess we were going to Blackpool, I think. We changed trains at Preston. We're standing on the platform at Preston Station, and there's the massive billboard for Tommy. It's got Roger Daltrey, um, you know, with the eye things and the earplugs and whatever it is. And the billboard says, your senses will never be the same. And I looked at it and I just thought, what is this? You know, God, what is this? Um, and a little bit of context, very quickly. Uh, Tommy was an AA, which uh, is an old cinema rating, which meant you had to be 14. Oh, to, 14? It was 14, yeah. You had to be 14 to see it. Right. But there was this fantastic loophole in Scotland, which said that if you went with an adult, anyone could go and see an AA film. So somehow I managed to persuade my mother to take me to see Tommy <laughs> at the age of 10. Um, and, uh, and it was just the most unbelievable thing I'd ever seen. I mean, it really was. Um, did, did you, and, did, what was, the, was there any tension between you and your mother? Or was your mother ready for this? Uh, well, first of all, I think she—I don't think she even registered what the hell the film was about, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Um, you know, and she probably thought, well, he's weird anyway, so that's fine. Yeah. Um, I mean, ironically, I am—I am the same age. I think I'm probably am the same age now as she was then. Right. Um, right. My son is the same age as I was then. I'm not sure that I would sit him down and watch Tommy now, to be honest. <laughs> um, and I'm not really sure that I understood that, you know, Keith Moon was a child molester and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever was going on. But, you know, the combination of the way that Ken Russell directs that film and the music is, I, I think, is you know, probably one of the greatest um, combinations of music and film that's mm. ever been done. I really do. Uh, and... I, and I never forgot, you know, I've never forgotten it. And I've watched it multiple times since. Um, I never think of it as kitsch. Uh, I never really think of it as being over the top, to be honest. I think the way that Russell approached it 
is absolutely perfect for the subject matter. And, um, and you know, it's just, you, you can pull out multiple sequences from that film and they are extraordinary. No, without a doubt. I mean, you, you, you're a better 10 year old than I was. Um, <laughs> Cause I think, I, I think I must've seen this early, early eighties, the VHS. And I think I saw it's two, that and, and the easy rider. I saw one as about 12 and I just for the life of me, I couldn't understand why everyone was going mad about them. And then it was like 10 years later, you get, you get, you get the gumption up to watch them again and you go, wow, they're genius. But it's like, yeah. I, I just wasn't, I mean, yeah, that's off to you. If you, if you, if you got, if you got, if you got some from it at that age. I think, I think what I got from it was, um, a little bit going back to, uh, you know, what we're saying about Tales of Hoffman, which I think I saw afterwards actually mm. is just, the way that um, pictures and music on a screen mm. can really combine together, mm. you know, and that's that's really where you know the musical film as a film really works. Uh, and if, you know, it's just you know, take anything from it, you know, I, 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 as you sent to me this morning, you know, that incredible bit of Tina Turner being mm. the acid queen and Margaret and the baked beans, um, even the bit you know, and Roger Daltrey is actually fantastic in it, you know, and it's very hard for, uh, you know, a rock star to be decent in a film, as we know. Mm. Uh, so all credit to him for that. And, even, even, and also be a rock star that has to be literally withdrawn for most of it. Yes, exactly. In, in a way, he's not, um, to be, he's not trying to steal the scene, is he? And the one thing that it did instill in me, obviously it took a while, mm. was a love of just how brilliant Ken Russell was, you know, uh, and you go back to, and then I went back to all those earlier films that he made, um, which, which kind of, you know, really informed me and my sensibilities as someone who makes documentaries. So I, I very much see him as, you know, a, a really major influence. And this, this is, as you said, unfortunately his peak. Yeah. But, you know, that's for another time. <laughs> Yeah, but the thing is, I mean, some people never get there, did he? So, I mean, for it to be... For, I always find that, I mean, it's, you know, obviously everyone wants to work forever. And I think creative industries, there's always that thing of, like, somehow there's, an, there's a shame attached to getting to some lofty height. And you think, people never get to lofty heights. So just... Yeah, and I think also in the sense of, and this is a terrible thing for me to say, in the sense of Britishness, mm. you know, because when I was thinking about this and I was thinking... They've got to be British musicals, not, you know, any other musicals. Mm. Um, the idea that there was the, 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 the issue with Ken Russell was he was phenomenally over the top. There was obviously there was something that wasn't quite British reserve about him. Like, how dare he be so extravagant? How dare he yeah. go to these preposterous heights? Why no, not? I'm going to say, because if you, if you hear an American critic talk about Ken Russell, they're not they're not jammed up with. The stiff upper lip, are they? They're going, they're just looking at what he's done as a filmmaker. And no, and I'd be very interested to hear what the French think of him. I mean, I'm not really sure what his stature is in France, yeah, but you is. know, they are the ultimate cineasts mm. after all. Indeed. Well, look, swiftly moving on to your final choice. Yeah, the bad one. Really? <laughs> so we've got Breaking Glass, uh, wrote and directed by uh, Brian Gibson, who looking at, he seemed to be sort of in a, in a, in a musical sort of. Um, universe for most of his career looking at his, looking at his work <laughs> and, and i suddenly remembered rather unfortunately produced by dodie fired really yes well i was looking i was looking at from a director point of view i looked at his stuff and it's like poltergeist 2 
after doing a series of sticks videos and you're like well, where did that happen <laughs> and then his last his last film credit is still crazy the the kind of old rockers still still doing it yeah god i didn't know that yeah so go on so what is it about i mean obviously we're talking hayes low connor here aren't we? <clears throat> well there are two things um I was really, you know, I was going through the chronology of all the British films and I was mm. slightly struggling to get to the one beyond Tommy. Um, and then Andy, my partner, said to me, surely you've got to have Breaking Glass. <laughs> and um, on a very personal level, uh, when we first met each other, we very much bonded over our love for this film. <laughs> no um, uh, which, you know, which is, you know, God, how, how weird is that? Um but I guess the reason why I wanted to choose it was because um, it really it really resonates with a very particular time for me. I think mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is not the Tommy time because I'm you know I'm only ten. But I guess that whole 1979 period, we just come through new wave punk. Uh, I was really beginning to get into music. Uh, mm -hmm. Music was really becoming a huge thing for me. Um, I was, in 1979, a diehard Gary Newman fan. Um, and Breaking Glass is sort of like, uh, it's sort of like, it's like someone making a movie based on Gary Newman, but they don't really get it. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like the Children's Film Foundation tried to make a film about Gary Newman. Um, and it's clunky and the script is terrible and Hazel O'Connor is not the greatest actor in the world. But it kind of, it, 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 and it's so raw on many levels, but it kind of really sums up 1979 to me. And, and, and for that reason, I will always love it. Is that a terrible thing to say? Not in the slightest, no. I mean, I think, I think that, that, that plays to the tune of what subjectivity really boils down to. You can't, you can't, you can't get away from it. <laughs> and if it, yeah. if it resonates, it resonates. No matter, even when you can objectively take something apart, I always feel that it, it doesn't really matter if it, if it still pulls at your heartstrings or, or, or just, you know, just makes you think of stuff. I mean, I was looking at the, I, was, I, I took a peek at this, because I'd not, I don't think I'd seen it for, God knows, two, three decades, I think. But it's like, you look at some of the footage, like what it, and what it captures over time. Forget the context of the story, just, the the on location shoots are like a are like a time warp anyway aren't they yes they are you know they're that they're that post they're as um, honest they're as honest as they get aren't they they're, they um, are you know and they're that post uh, three day week Britain that you know has constantly been rolling out in documentaries it does to be fair you know um, touch on stuff like rock against racism etc mm. um, yes it's not. You know, it's not got the credibility of the Clash or the Jam or whatever you know people might want to remember from that time, but you know, I, I kind of, it, it, I don't know, I'm, I'm struggling to defend it in a way because I feel like I have to defend it. It doesn't really need defending. It's a sort of time capsule. It's it's a period movie. Um, Hazel O'Connor, you know, you know, poor love. You know, her career never really did much afterwards. Mm. Um, but the other one thing I will say, which I really do want to defend, it's got two incredible songs in it. You know, so Will You, which is probably playing on, um, you know, Heart FM as we speak, you know, yeah. which is kind of like the new wave Stevie Nicks. That's a great song. 
Um, and at the end, when she has the triumphant moment, she does eighth day and it's, mm. you know, this big, enormous staging. Uh, they're, you know, they're pretty good moments in musical film history, I think. Well, you'd be glad to know that uh, my wife's never seen the film and uh, she loved all the music <laughs> from it, but never saw the film. So we're going to be watching that very soon, I do believe. Okay, you might want to stick with the soundtrack album, actually. (laughs) (laughs) To be perfectly honest, I mean, funnily, I was, um, I was, you know, on the train this morning thinking about, you know, the choices and everything. Oh, well, we can segue in because we're gonna we're gonna do a wrap up now. So carry on your thoughts about the choices you've made. No, no, no. What I was going to say was the thing that Breaking Glass reminded me most of, which is another film that I absolutely love, which, you know, is completely discredited, is the um, Barbra Streisand, Chris Christopherson version of A Star is Born. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, Breaking Glass is pretty much the kind of low budget British equivalent of that. (laughs) Anyway, that was all I was going to say. Cool. Now, look, I mean, I'm struggling thinking about what we've talked about, whether... I mean, did you did you see a thread between the five choices you've ended up making in terms of what 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 they say about what, what it say about musicals from what you enjoy? I sort of did, but I sort of I'm a bit reluctant about it because what I the thread that I saw was um, was a kind of combination between the. Uh, the idea of Britishness, you know, mm. the sort of Britishness of these films yeah. and the way in which I think all of them, with the potential exception of Breaking Glass, um, are much more connected to a much more bigger picture of cinema, of a kind of like, um, not necessarily world cinema, but a sort of like European idea of cinema, you know. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I think... I feel bad saying it, but I think Evergreen is a much more sophisticated British film than a lot of dramas that were made at the time. I think Powell and Pressburger were, you know, coming, you know, literally pretty much off the back of the Second World War, Mm. were, you know, the precursors to Derek Jarman more than they're the precursors to a kind of like, you know, kitchen sink drama. Um, I definitely think that for Magical Mystery Tour, and I would say the same for Ken Russell with Tommy. And I guess Breaking Glass is, to use a term that I hate, the outlier of the five. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say, because that's, that's kind of what you, you've kind of, with, with your kind of mission to make, to, to give musicals their cinematic importance through your TV, through your TV show. Also, in addition to that, thinking about Britishness, Musicals are in, are in many senses the antithesis of Britishness, but in the same because <laughs> just because of a cultural thing, not because we can't do them. It's just a sense of showing off and 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 and, um, and being a bit more over the top, which means you can be more expressive and stuff. I think that was an interesting part of um, oh god, what was the discussion about the French stuff in episode two, which is yeah. this idea of how you express emotions. There was they they were sort of no dancing, everything just expressed through singing. Um, whereas, like, obviously, singing in the rain, there's Gene Kelly's doing introspection through <laughs> and celebration <laughs> through his movement. You know, he's not he's not pissing around, is he? Um, no, of course. I mean, you know, the, uh, and also, I, I would say that French film, um, uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, yeah. is probably in my top five films of all time. I mean, you know, I I sat editing that episode for weeks, and every time that music came up. No joke, seriously. 
I was, you know, having to choke back the tears. I think it's just one of the greatest achievements in film ever. But that's that, that's not part of our conversation. That's another story. <laughs> but that's but that's partly serious. I know that. I thank you for pointing it out. It's 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 worth it for people listening. Um, so just one one last thing. Then do you want to just give us a quick plug again as to as to the name of the TV show and when, when people can see it. Yep, it is Neil Brand's Sound of Movie Musicals. It's going mm-hmm. to be on BBC Four. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't got a completely confirmed schedule yet, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be Friday nights from the middle of December. So it's in that sort of, you know, the slot that BBC Four have where they have like lots of music documentaries and stuff Indeed. on a Friday. Indeed. It will be during that slot and it will be, you know, something to watch uh, while you get ready for Christmas. Sounds fantastic. And you, you produced and directed it, is that right? I did indeed. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, congratulations on the show. If, if, if it's anything like episode two that I've seen, then I'm, it's going to be a blast. Uh, and thank I look you. And forward to seeing the rest of them. And thank you very much for giving us your time on the BritFlix podcast. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly... There's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.